Hello and welcome in to another edition of the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. I'm Jeremy Huber. The Hoya Insider is your home for the stories of coaches, staff, and others from and tied to the Georgetown Athletics Department. A special episode today as we honor and celebrate Women's History Month with a pair of guests as we'll be joined by Associate Director Student Athlete Services at Georgetown, Dr. Shelley Habel, and the all-time leading scorer in Hoya basketball history, the inspiring Sugar Rogers. Rogers, an integral part of the best era of Hoya's women's hoops, leading the program to three NCAA tournament bursts and a Sweet 16 appearance while earning All-American honors in all four of her years on the Hilltop. Well, Sugar, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No, thank you, Jeremy, for having me. I'm excited to, you know, get into all the topics that you have ready for me. Yeah, and, you know, again, you're, you're such a great player, Georgetown, and you have such a great story, too. That's kind of where I think that the meshing of the two is so good to have you on the show today. And, um, you know, normally we get into the folks' upbringing when we talk to them on this show, and I think, you know, no one has a more interesting story about their upbringing than you. Um, your father, really not around, absentee father, your mother passed away sick and then passed away in middle school um from that angle you know where'd you find the strength in a childhood like that to kind of go on and do the great things that you did I think um just growing up in poverty I found the strength for my mother um I was her caretaker I was her nurse so I did you know the cooking the cleaning making sure she had everything she had lupus and um you know she lost her battle to that but I got it from her watching her fight you know, um, day in and night out. It was just, uh, you know, that's where I got it from. My mom, she taught me to be the woman I am today. And, you know, some people could kind of take that and get bitter from it, but it seems like you found inspiration, you know, because other kids, you know, they're, they're not 13 and taking care of their mom. How did you kind of turn that? Were there times that there was a bitterness to it? And did you kind of catch yourself and say, no, you know, this isn't, this is where I am. I love my mom. Kind of, how did you turn that into a positive? Uh, sometimes I looked at it as a bitter thing, especially when I started playing games and didn't have people come watch me play. And I'm like, dang, like if my mom here, she would come watch me, you know, she'll come watch and support me. But I also used it as motivation. Like I got to make it out. Like I got to make something of myself because my brother had went to jail and my sister had been to prison. And I also grew up my three nieces. I mean, my two nephews and a niece and just seeing um, my two nephews, my sister and brother just in and out of jail. I'm like, I got to save the family name. And I've always kept that in the back of my mind. And um just seeing them going the direction they did and just hearing, you know, their stories. It was just more so like, sugar, don't do this. This is the wrong path. You're on the right path and um, keep moving forward and just having a support system, whether it was coaches, family members, uh, friends of the family, people who just met me like, look, you're doing the right thing. Um, keep pushing in the right direction. And um, yeah, I was able to make it out and, you know, have a successful career in the WNBA. Sugar, what role did Boo Williams play in your life? Oh, Boo Williams. Oh, man. He's a, he's a, a critical part in why I came to Georgetown. He was like uh, Terry Fillnoy's sister, and she worked at Georgetown at the time. But um, he knew that I was struggling and um, didn't really have the support system, quote unquote. But he was like, look, whatever school you choose, like, I'm going to have your back. And um, Georgetown was recruiting me. And I'm just thinking in my mind, like, brother, sister, let's go to Georgetown. And I Google, like some people do like the four trips to the schools. I Google Georgetown and I seen, I was like, okay, academically, if basketball don't work out academically, I can get a job almost anywhere. It's one of the top prestigious schools in the country. And I Googled it. I looked at it. I was like, oh, okay, this looks like some stuff off Harry Potter. I'm going there. <laughs> It's actually funny because I was reading up that you kind of said, where's Georgetown? But, you know, between Alonzo Mourning being from your area and Iverson being there. And, you know, we all know the way that the, the, you know, I used to say that under big John Thompson, Georgetown was black America's school. It was, it was kind of what some would say Notre Dame is to Catholics. Um, but was there a little bit of that? Did you know about Georgetown already or was it that kind of, this is this magical place or mysterious place, maybe more the, the apropos word. 
To be honest, I really didn't, but at the same time I did. And because of the struggle and having to survive every day, you don't put two and two together. Sure. Like I really didn't hold no into like into like uh I knew about Iverson, but I didn't know everything about Iverson. Like sure. I knew about Alonzo Morning coming out and going there, but I really didn't know like in depth. And I didn't and I didn't make my decision because Iverson went there. But I was like, man, like Iverson went here and Alonzo, you know, once I got there and it was like I had time to decompress of my own situation. I'm like, oh, OK, these people from the 757. So we got something going on at Georgetown. All right. So let me make a name on the woman's side, and you know, bring that uh, 757 here to Georgetown. And of course you did. And, you know. When you ended up deciding on Georgetown, what put it over the top for you? I know you talked about the academic component, but were there other things that really said, this is the place I got to be? Um, I just wanted to put Georgetown on the map. I know like before I came in, they was just getting their feet wet, just making the tournament and doing other things, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I mean, I could have went to almost any school in the country, but let's go to Georgetown. Let's put Georgetown on the map. And um, I was able to do that with my, you know, teammates having them as well. And, um, you know, like you said, like, hopefully Georgetown gets back in that position. But, um, you know, we shall see. What are your some of your fondest memories of your time on the Hilltop? Oh, man, it's so many. But um, I think for me, it's just like coming to Georgetown was a culture shock. And I didn't necessarily know how to handle Georgetown in itself and um, Monica McNutt took me under her wing and guided me and was like, look, you can do special things here, but you got to be open-minded. And um, she, like, it was a battle. Like we fought like little sister, big sister. And she was able to just, you know, keep me motivated and keep me sane while I was at Georgetown because I didn't understand why people wanted to help. I looked at that as like, you want something from me, but just knowing like Georgetown has the necessities in place to help the kids like me. And it's funny because I've done some games with Monica and we know what she's doing nowadays when it comes to the media world. And, but again, I, that, that makes perfect sense. And she'd be the one to kind of say, Hey, let, you know, let, let's expand our horizons a little bit. Correct. Yeah. Monty didn't like me. She was like, Oh, <laughs> like you got here and you thank you. And I just didn't, you know, you only know what you know. And I didn't know. I'm like, oh, man, like maybe I should have took that visit to come to see how it was. But uh, no, we are great friends. One of my my dearest friends of all times. And, um, you know, everybody was like six, sweet 16 and all of that stuff. Like in my mind, I'm like, that's what we supposed to we supposed to do that. But it's just about the relationships I've been able to build, uh, not just with my teammates, but uh, other students and, and the professors. I still have great relationships with them. So I'm just thankful I had an opportunity to go to Georgetown. On the court, you mentioned it. It's more of the off the court, but obviously I think two of the highlights, the win over Maryland to get to the Sweet 16, also the upset of Tennessee where you had a heck of a game in that one. Can you give us, the fans, some quick memories of those two wins for you? Um, I mean, we played in the Virgin Islands in Tennessee, and most people don't know, like, I'm asthmatic. And I, I struggled when we was in the Virgin Islands. But, um, I mean, my teammates just believed in me more than anything. And that gave me confidence to believe in myself. And just having a green light to be able to just be the player who I am. And, um, I mean, I went out there and I showed out. I just, I just had a ball. I was having fun. And playing on those teams – you know, having fun. We always said defend, rebound, share the ball, but most importantly, have fun. So you can have moments like this where you can talk about those games in the future. Besides, we talked about this before we got going, but obviously any good basketball team, you've been on so many in your life, they got to have talent. You have to have good players, but obviously there's some other things that kind of work into good teams and, you know, if Georgetown's kind of going to get back to that, you know, what are some of the things you guys had besides really good talent that made those teams very, very good? Some of the best at the Hilltops ever seen. Um, we had great chemistry. If that's what you're saying, like we had great chemistry. Uh, the coaching staff was beat, was able to put pieces together. Uh, you have a star player, you have players who are stars in their own roles. And I think sometimes getting kids to understand that is hard. You know, and um, 
I think like I look at myself and just like um, my past of basketball, like playing AAU, I wasn't the star player. I had to come off the bench and work my way up. And even, you know, uh, playing on a, a professional level, it was the same thing. Like your roles change and you got to be able to adopt to your role. And that doesn't mean that you're not a star because star, you can be a star in your own role. And just finding those kids who can buy into your system, you know? So, I mean, that's kind of my spell on that. Talking to Sugar Rogers, Georgetown women's basketball legend on the Hoy Insider podcast presented by PNC. Well, of course, after your storied career at Georgetown, you transition on to the WNBA and talk about, I guess, first kind of getting that on your radar that, you know, guys, they're always thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to play at the next level or play, even if they're, they're not good enough to play at the next level, sometimes they're thinking that way. It's not something with I me, mean, probably when you were younger, wasn't completely on your radar of the WNBA. It was more maybe, hey, I'm going to go play in college and hopefully have a good career there. No, I was, so no, was going to go to the to the military. Like, that was my, <laughs> my plan B um, on the buddy system with my best friend. But I was able to get a scholarship um, to play. And um, even in college, I wasn't really, like, the WNBA wasn't a radar on my radar until I won Big East Rookie of the Year. And I was sitting on the podium with Tina Charles, who was, gonna get drafted and then I looked over and then I see Maya Moore on the I'm like oh man like I can play with the best of them you know so then I'm like all right cool like all right let me you know let me get things together as far as academically stand every summer to take on extra classes so that my workload could be lighter during the season where I can you know get up in the morning and go shoot stay after and just work on my game so no, the WNBA wasn't on my radar until my freshman year after I won the Big East Rookie of the Year. And jumping into professional ball, and I know that I believe from looking at your bio, you did, played some overseas as well. Um, you know, what's what's that like? What's that kind of again? Almost they say the old phrase. Uh, you know, you gotta you know have two different masters. You end up having your WNBA, but you also have uh, you're playing overseas. How do you kind of do with that grind, and not only mentally grind, but also a physical grind where you're playing almost year round? Yeah, I mean. Kudos to everybody who does it. Like, if you do it, if you do both, you play overseas and you play in the league, like, and that's <laughs> that's mostly women, like, they play all year round. Um, but it's tough. It's a lot of sacrifice. You miss out on a lot of things as far as, like, your family. But um, the WNBA is growing. As you can tell, like, the new CBA that's in place, um, you're able to make a, a living off of just playing in the WNBA now with the uh, – the salary's raising. So I think it's a, you know, it's a great experience playing overseas. You get to experience another culture. It makes you appreciate your culture much more. It just depends on where you go and just being able to branch out and see new things. But um, kudos to the woman who do it because they do it all year round. It's no break, but I've been able and fortunate enough to just be like, look, like sacrifice the money. Like my mental well-being is, is most important. And um, for those who don't know, like, I took a two-year break and uh, to go back to school, and um, I'm in grad school at Georgetown, and I'll graduate in May, so uh, I look forward to that. Congratulations on that, Sugar, and uh, again, when we look at your WNBA career, what what's kind of the, the top moment for you, and what's been a pretty good one, a champion, you won sixth woman of the year, What what are some of those top moments that you remember from your career in the WNBA? All right, so I'll just start off like my rookie year, like coming out, winning the championship. It's just one of the it, – it was such a special moment because people were like, well, you didn't play that much. Like I played, like I learned a lot from Simone Augustus, Lindsey Well. I got to play with uh, Rebecca Bronson and Georgetown Hoyer. So actually to win it with her in that moment, it was just, man, like it was going to help me for my career in the future, but I didn't know that because sometimes I had bitter moments. Like I'm not playing, but I'm, I think I'm good enough to play. And um, it just kept me motivated. So when I got traded to New York, I ended up being very successful there. Although we didn't win it, I won six women of the year. And um, people look at the award like, Oh man, you won the award. Like you should be such and such and such, but a lot went into winning the award. Cause I went until the starting lineup 
and I was starting and then they was like well you'll be better to come off the bench and I'm just like thinking like <laughs> I worked hard to get to this moment for you to tell me that I need to come off the bench and then having to accept and change all over but um that's another moment that I've had and then this past season going to the finals with uh the team that we had in the bubble for the Las Vegas Aces uh definitely great moments and just being a part of watching Asia Wilson win MVP and just knowing how you know um dominant she's gonna be in this league but overall like I've had a, a great experience just in the WNBA I always say it's about the people that you meet on the journey so yeah since we have you, what was it like being in the bubble? Man, it was tough. It was tough. It had its moments because we was fighting for, you know, social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement and just all us being together, locked in for that. But it's, it's mentally tough because you don't have your family there to support you. Um, everybody's right there. So you just you just lost and you see the people who beat you on the elevator. <laughs> then you live like I live next door to a referee so I can't complain about the calls that I get to my family too loud. Uh, but it was it was a good experience. It's just the confinement of it all. Sugar, um, I wanted to ask you this because I, I did, you mentioned that Rebecca Brunson, you played with her with Minnesota. Did you guys ever shoot for honor of being best Georgetown women's player? <laughs> <laughs> play no, game one on one. Some people say like it's me, but when you look at Rebecca and what she's done in the NBA, like people don't know she won W of uh, five. She's the most winning championships. Yeah, she won the most championships. She has five. So well, we're, we're talking about your Georgetown career, though. That's the thing, and we got to make is, sure we're, but, we're okay. focusing. Okay, 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 okay. But when I look at her, I'm like, yeah, she she goaded. <laughs> Well, it, 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 at least you definitely respect Rebecca for what she's done. Another real quick WNBA question, and this comes from a kid who grew up in the 80s and watched him as a player and really didn't like him very much. What was it like playing for Bill Ambeer? Well, from hearing all the stories and people talk about him <laughs> playing in the 80s and how he was an asshole. Now, he has his asshole moment, but um, to me, like he's always been like this big, soft teddy bear. So... He may look hard on the outside, but he's very soft in the inside. And he just wants the best for you. Um, but, um, yeah, old Bill and Beer. <laughs> Sugar, let's talk a bit about your book. It's called They Better Call Me Sugar. It's available on Amazon, a bunch of different places. Uh, what gave you the idea to write a book? When I was in college, my co Coach Brown, he was like, well, I think it's best if you go to canceling. And I'm like, ignorant to the fact that I'm like, you know, I'm not going to canceling. A white man can't tell me how to deal with my problems. That's how ignorant to the fact that I was of canceling and going to therapy. So I went to therapy and in the therapy sessions, I really didn't say much, but the, the therapist at the time, he was like, write it down, like write it down. So I used to always write like stories, just stories. It was just like seeing blood on paper. And then um, I was like, all right, I'm gonna write a book eventually with so much stuff that I had. And um, I remember my senior year, I took a class with Monica Maxwell-Pagel and it was just about writing, like writing more stories and more stories. And I had a lot of just raw, raw stuff. and. Um, I always said like I was going to write a book. I just, this past year, I had the time, a couple of years, I had the time to really research and see like, you know, what publishing company I want to work with, what publishing company want to work on me. Always like how much they're going to give you, how much you're going to do, like just answers out of the contract. And I, I found one in um, Akashi Books and um, I just been working with them and uh, my book released, They Better Call Me Sugar, uh, May the 4th. So make sure you go out, like you said, on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Nobles. Um, it's going to be in a ton of stores, but uh, it's definitely a great read. It's a young auto, uh, a young adult memoir by me. So just make sure you get out there, grab the book, great read, pass it to your kids. You can read it. Grown adults can read it as well. But um, I shared a lot of a lot of deep stuff in there. And sugar, I always feel like you know we talk about racial issues and different things, and I always feel like and one of the people I always 
talk that PSA white people should listen to is Marshawn Lynch because he's a guy who is a real guy from the streets, but he also has figured out a way to communicate with people on the other side of the fence. I feel like you're definitely in that group where you talk about your really tough upbringing, but you came to Georgetown. You eventually kind of got into, you know, the things at Georgetown that could help you. Um, and you talk about trust. And I feel like that's both ways in your humble opinion, where are ways that that trust can kind of be built on both sides of the fence? I think you just got to become knowledgeable of the fact of just doing your homework and your research on the topics. And I think one thing is just being open-minded because if you call, you come, like you go in with a closed mind, like you ain't going to get nowhere. But if you come in with an open mind, like, let me really sit and listen, or let me really sit and learn. And um, once we get to that point, like you did the research, now you kind of understand, you know, uh, what everybody is going through. And, um, I think I think that's it, like being knowledgeable of the fact. Sugar, what's next for you? Who knows what's next for me? <laughs> I don't even know. Whatever God got planned. Um, my book is something that I really want to focus on, obviously, graduating school. But um, what WNBA team I'm going to be on next? Well, we shall see. Has there ever been an inkling for you to coach? Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Y'all want me back at Georgetown? <laughs> I had, I had to put my pay grade. <laughs> y'all want me back at Georgetown? Oh, uh, y'all want me back at Georgetown? Just make the calls. Like, <laughs> tell them come get me. I'll, I'll, I'll welcome that opportunity. We're open on. Well, Sugar, we'll wrap it up on this one. And I found this in a quote on one of the stories they did on the, the Las Vegas paper about you, where you were talking about one of your, your nieces and you had said to her that your advice was find something you love, let it be your guide, your inspiration, your reason not to get back into the bucket. Of course, you talk about crabs in the bucket, kind of people keeping you down, not kind of achieving up to where you think you could. Why is that kind of the advice that really strikes home with you and the advice that you kind of pass along to folks who may have been in your situation and want something better? Um, I, I always use that term, like that term crabs in a bucket because I'm from – I stay by the ocean. So all we do is eat crabs. We do crab warrior bags, like <laughs> things of that nature. So if you got live crabs, when it's time for them to get in that hot bucket, all the crabs are trying to grab at each other to make it out. And um, I always say like, there's a, it's like one or two crabs that's going to make it out the bucket. And um, you just got to keep striving for greatness. It's going to be things pulling at you all the time, distracting you all the time, just life situations like death, things that's out of your control, but you just got to keep pulling and, and going up and, and going forward. And um, I always say like happiness is the most important thing for me. And I've never really, I looked at money, but not my happiness. I can't buy that. That's something you can't buy. So, um, you know, do things that make you happy. I can't do what makes my cousin happy. I can't, I got to do what makes me happy. Well, Sugar Rogers, you're a legend for Georgetown women's basketball. And I tell you what, you're a legend in life as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. Thanks for having me. Also, when we going to retire at number 14? I've seen somebody wearing it. I need that, I need that retired. <laughs> but we'll, no, we'll, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I appreciate we'll, it. We'll pass along your request. We'll have more on the Hoya Insider <laughs> Podcast coming up after this. As the official bank of the Georgetown Hoyas, PNC Bank is committed to all those who are rooting for the home team. With Virtual Wallet, you'll get a breakdown of your budget and see how much is scheduled out of your bills versus how much is left to spend. So you know when it's the perfect time to buy tickets to the big game. To learn more, visit pnc.com slash virtual wallet. PNC Bank, official bank of the Georgetown Hoyas. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. 2019 PNC Bank National Association member F. FDIC. In 1979, Jiffy Lou provided the world's first quick oil change with no appointment, and that changed everything. And now, 40 years later, it's time to change everything again. Introducing Jiffy Lou MultiCare, where at participating locations, you can now get the same fast and convenient no appointment service on brakes, batteries, spark plugs, and more, performed by our highly trained technicians. Playing Jiffy Lou MultiCare. Jiffy Lube Multicare. Now, more than ever, you can do more in a Jiffy. For Hoya fans, Saturday is game day. 
For business owners, it's another day in your work week. UPS gets that, and that's why they're offering Saturday delivery, so you can keep things running smoothly even while your customers drop everything for the game. Stay on top of your game. Ship with UPS, official logistics company of Georgetown Athletics. We're back on the Hoya Insider podcast presented by PNC. Our next guest is Dr. Shelley Habel, the Associate Director, Student Athlete Services at Georgetown. Habel, a key part of the Hoya Athletic Department, overseeing academic support for the vast majority of Georgetown's teams. Well, Shelley, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be with you. And Shelly, um, like we do in a lot of these interviews, we like to get a little backstory on folks. And, um, you know, obviously you work pretty closely with the athletic department. Um, in your growing up years, did athletics play a role in your growing up? Yes. Yeah, so I'm an only child. My father coached softball and I played softball up through high school. And I realized uh, the level of commitment required for D1 athletes. And at that point in time, I realized this is not a good fit. I have too many other interests. So I stopped playing sports in high school. And so I didn't play in college and I did, I, my undergrad, I did overseas. And so as you likely know, in Europe, sports aren't attached to colleges. And so I, I stopped playing athletics and sports in 10th grade. Now with that though, is there still, it feels like any athlete who plays, there's always kind of that love for the game though. Do you still have a little bit of that? Yes, I, my husband is the sports widow on the weekends. It's not him. <laughs> <laughs> so my husband is the sports widow on the weekends. Uh, he has absolutely no interest in sports. Well, at least there's one in the house who's big in the sports game. Absolutely. Um, uh, your, your background, um, I know eventually you ended up going to school for your, uh, your, do- your doctorate in sociology or master's in sociology at Hawaii. Both, doc- masters, both my master's and doctorate were at the University of Hawaii. How'd you end up there? Um, they had the best sociology department for East Asian studies. And my, under, my first master's is in East Asian studies with a major in Chinese. And so at the time, they had the best sociology department in the country with a heavy hitter for each of the three major regions for Korea, China, and Japan. And so that's why I ended up in Hawaii. I was interested in studying Asia and interested primarily in China. Where the interest to study Asia come from? I was interested in that part of the world because it's one of the oldest civilizations in the world. And so to learn and truly understand a culture, you need to learn the language. And so I started studying Chinese and the history and that's what my undergrad and first master's is in. And so I spent some time there and after two trips there, I realized very quickly, I didn't want to live in China for four or five years working on my dissertation, which is what was going to be necessary. And the area of interest in sociology for me was looking at economic development and the role tourism plays. And living in Hawaii, that is the best, one of the best places in the country to study tourism, because that is one of the major industries. There are two major, three major industries. You have agriculture, you've got the military, and you've got tourism. And so it's one of the three primary industries in Hawaii. So it was one of the best places in the country to study tourism. It's interesting going out there, and I know that doing a little research, uh, you were kind of focusing on social change, economic development, as you said, in small rural and ethnically diverse communities. Now, in China, and I have a really good friend whose mother was a teacher out in Hawaii, I think about 45, 50 years ago, and she had said that really out there, there was a distrust of Westerners. It just kind of was embedded a bit in the culture. So you go out there, and I'm sure a lot of the stuff had to be field study going out in the community a little bit. Um, How did you deal with that? And did that kind of change your worldview a little bit? So I realized very quickly that I was the other in Hawaii. And it is, in hindsight, it is probably the closest thing that most Americans will get to traveling overseas because white folks aren't in the majority. And I realized within the first year of grad school, the first two things everybody asks is, what are you? And where did you go to school? because both of those position you within the hierarchy in Hawaii, because historically each ethnic group that came to Hawaii came for a reason and they were all brought to work on plantations. And the plantation owners did that as a strategic method to keep everybody from communicating with each other because they all spoke different languages. And so there's this historical context for immigration into Hawaii. And I realized within the first year how important it was to understand my role in history with what I look like because I was experiencing um, being treated differently, 
um, not being trusted. And so my dissertation advisor, one of, the, one of my five dissertation advisors had entree into the community where I did field research. And without that, I wouldn't have been trusted at all. And I'd lived there at that point for five years. And so I understood the importance of talking story and getting to know people and building relationships. Uh, none of that would have been possible without one of my dissertation advisors um, because the, it's a small community. There are no, there are no large stores. There's no stoplights when I did my research there. Um, and there are, there are no chains. People leave their cars unlocked because there's no place to drive a car anywhere except around the island. And so crime's very low, it's a very trusting community. But by the end of that summer that I spent there, um, people were giving me going away gifts. And so I had learned a level of trust to portray things in such a way that would not necessarily be favorable to the company that owned the island, but to represent the story of the people. You mentioned the fact you kind of had that entree with someone, you know, kind of vouching for you, but were there certain things that you did to make sure that people, you kind of followed up that original, hey, this lady is a good lady with what you did kind of to earn their trust? Yes, being respectful of their culture and of their viewpoint and being willing to invest the time. And we're talking about many hours with each individual to develop that relationship. It isn't simply sit down for an interview. It's doing things within the community and helping within the community. And so it was, it was being able to establish those relationships over a period of time and, and enter into people's private lives. It's not that much different with students and, and trying to build that trust factor because students see me as a middle-aged white woman. And a lot of our students come from different backgrounds. And so being your authentic self with students to get that entree, to build the relationship so that they trust you to be able to do something on their behalf and help them. And so it's very similar with the kind of work that I do with students in that sense. It's the, it's the trust building piece and the relationship building piece. You've got to be our authentic self. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Shelly, you came to Georgetown, but you didn't do it as an administrator. Tell us how you came to the Hilltop. So I was looking for a job. My husband was military. So you mentioned somebody else. So my husband was military. Uh, we met in Hawaii, got married in Hawaii. I was looking for, he got transferred to DC. We chose DC knowing that that would be an easier place for an overeducated person to get, in, get a job. There are lots of people in DC with degrees. Um, somebody in the American Sociological Association knew I was looking for a job and the sociology department was looking for somebody to come for a year. And so I figured I'd have one year at Georgetown to get, to get my feet wet and start looking for a new job. And that was every year somebody was on sabbatical. So I stayed for five years in the sociology department teaching. And my last year, I was starting to get burnt out on teaching. And one of our senior women administrators reached out to me and said, look, you've done a lot of programming with athletics. You've collaborated with us. We have a new job. What do you think about doing this? And that's the academic advisor position that I'm in now. So I'm the first and only person who's held the position. So I've been here for a long time. It seems like at Georgetown, we have that with a few people where they've come into these brand new roles and they've kind of been able to carve those out as not only they saw fit, but kind of getting a lot of hands-on and be able to kind of mold things. Was that something that was attractive about the job to you? Absolutely. It was an opportunity to grow. Um, my teaching still comes into play. My discipline in sociology still comes into play. Um, it was an opportunity that the jobs evolved quite a bit over the past 15 years uh, in terms of services to students, services to faculty, um, liaising with different offices. So there's been a lot of evolution of the job and it was exciting to build something new. Shelly, it's funny. We talked about this before we went on. I think you were open to me doing it this way. I went and got a piece of your bio and it said, Dr. Habel is the athletics department's liaison to other units, individuals, establishing goals, developing policy and participating institutional planning surrounding student athlete education and welfare. The director also works closely with senior administrators across different schools with directors of programs who integrate academic and curricular experiences with departments that provide direct and administrative student services to ensure the academic success of the Hoya student athletes, the layman. What does that mean? So on any given day, I hold four roles. Um, <laughs> MAG extraordinaire, <laughs> <laughs> air traffic control. Um, I'm the person who says no. Um, and I'm also the one who reigns on parades. And so it just, it depends on what it is. There's no, there is a rhythm to the academic year, but on any given day, 
it, it isn't the day I anticipated based on what's going on. Um, COVID has reduced a lot of that because we have fewer teams traveling. Whenever you have teams traveling, that opens up the opportunity for more stuff to happen. Um, delays in travel, uh, men's lacrosse got delayed. Uh, they were supposed to leave on Friday to play Denver on Saturday. Epic snowstorm, they left yesterday to play today. Um, there are exams today. And so, you know, a good chunk of Friday, Thursday and Friday was sent sending, spending, sending emails about students on their behalves. And so um, no is often in my vocabulary. It's always followed up with but, um, because I am a service-minded individual. It's no, no, you can't do that. Or no, I can't do that, but here's what we can do. And so I am service-minded. I am problem-solving problem solving oriented. But it's a lot of nagging, both of the coaches and of the students and reminding, did you do this? Have you done this? Why haven't you done this? This is what happens. And then when you show up in my office, this is what happens when I've asked you three times not to do this, here we are. And so there's a lot of problem solving. Um, and then the raining on the parade, um, explaining to, to other people on campus about why something won't work for our student athletes. And so, you know, a, a classic example is um, wanting to hold office hours on Friday afternoons. A lot of faculty are free on Friday afternoons. And so wouldn't Friday afternoons be an awesome time to have office hours? And it's like, mm, no, not really, not for our student athletes. Monday would be better. And so a lot of saying no and saying, yes, that's a great idea, coming up with the, but have you considered this? And it's funny, we were talking about this, that, you know, just coordinating students missing class and those type of things, you know, how, how do you keep track of all that? It is a challenge. Um, to some degree, it is, it is hampered and, and made easier in some ways by our constraints with field space. So you know how many teams are using a field and there are a limited number of times those teams can be using the field. And so everything else is a domino effect. And so you've got to keep in mind what, what, what semester you're in and who's traveling. Um, I check my calendar at the end of every week for next week to see who's on deck. It's easier now. I only have six teams traveling. Uh, normally we have nine. And what I've done, uh, our athletic director has been gracious enough to fund graduate assistance. So some of that administrative work has been pulled off of me. Um, I have one grad assistant now, but with only six teams traveling, I've been able to keep up with that myself. Um, and I'm a little nosy. Um, I've, I've maintained those for for the national teams, baseball's about to start. So I'll give that back to one of the grad assistants because the, the email correspondence is a uh, an enormous time consuming part of my day. Yeah, that's amazing. And you were, you know, we're talking about this, you know, when you look at, you know, you were given these grad assistants and that's become, I assume a little bit, another part of your job, like kind of figuring out who fits in what role and kind of overseeing study hall. How do you kind of pinpoint the right people for the right job? So I start interviewing them. I, I post the jobs in May because the early bird catches the worm. And so I typically have my grad assistants hired for fall semester by the end of June. And I, and because I, I posted so early, I get the cream of the crop. I get probably 20 or 30 applications for five positions minimum. And I'm able to pick and interview and be very selective about who it is. And a lot of them don't have student athlete backgrounds, but what I look for is teaching backgrounds. And so a lot of my, a lot of the folks that I've, that I've hired have been in Teach for America or they've been in high school teaching. And those lessons are invaluable with working with student athletes. So I know that they can break things down and translate for the students, what it means to manage your time, regardless of your student athlete or regular students, they understand the component of um, being able to teach an individual something and being able to teach it in multiple ways. Shelly, why is academic support so important? It's important at any school. Um, we're at a top 25 school and the academic expectations, students are a little shocked when I say, this is what you signed on in the dotted line in the small print. You didn't read the small print, <laughs> did you? Um, we're a highly decentralized institution, which is why my role is so important. Um, there's a lot of information that circulates through my office um, that's relevant to the coaches from an academic side and relevant to main campus from an athletic side. And so being able to connect the dots, because we've got four undergraduate schools, we've got student affairs, and then we've got athletics. And being able to connect the dots because of my institutional knowledge and the time that I've been at Georgetown is, is the critical piece where everything sort of flows through. And so being able to understand and anticipate the things that are coming down the pike um, have been extraordinarily important. 
And so being able to anticipate what it is a student's going to need help with, um, knowing that the chem exams are at these times every semester, uh, knowing that we have nine teams traveling during finals under normal circumstances and planning for that. I'd, I'd normally start planning for that already. That would have started two weeks ago. Shelly, another part of your job, it's again, we keep going through this, like there's different layers. We keep kind of unwrapping. It's like the <laughs> nesting dolls. You would say, oh, there's another one. There's another one. You, part of your job is kind of making sure regulations from not only the NCAA, the Big East, the Patriot League are followed. Of course, we know most of Georgetown sports in the Big East, but also the football team, the Patriot League. And that's another, you know, almost hundred kids, 85 in that area. You know, how, how do you kind of deal with that? Is that just a matter of kind of knowing the different rule books and say, okay, this is what I got to deal with. Do you have to almost have to just go through it and pour through and put it somewhere in your brain? I I had the fortunate experience of when I started this job for APR to be introduced, the academic progress rate. So when I attended the rules education seminars early on in my job, my first year, all of that was new. And so I've had to maintain currency with other rules that apply to me, communication, text message, for example, Um, text message. You can now text message recruits. You couldn't do that 10 years ago. (laughs) So that's actually the stuff that's changed that has been harder to keep up with is the communication rules. Um, The academics haven't changed that much. Um, Football is actually pretty straightforward. It's nine credits every semester compared to everybody else. The GPA requirements are the same across all all sports. Baseball is also a little bit different, but because we're the kind of academic institution we are, our students graduate in four years, men's soccer by and large three and a half years. We have some students on other teams that graduate in three and a half years. And the way we're set up from an academic standpoint, we don't typically get anywhere near eligibility issues. And so it makes, because of the way the school is set up and because it's so small, the academic deans play a key role in the advising piece as well. And so all of that matters. All of that makes a difference. Talking with Shelly Habel, the Associate Director of Student Athlete Services at Georgetown on the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. Um, Shelly, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, it is Women's History Month, and it's there's a nice tie-in here to that, I think, in the Georgetown Athletic part department and part of the kind of the department you oversee mary fenlon of course the academic advisor that john thompson brought on when he came in to lead the hoya basketball program and we know how important that basketball program is but the legacy of mary fenlon does that still being felt at georgetown today absolutely she paved the way so she and i did not cross paths professionally she was gone by the time i started at georgetown i've never actually met her but she certainly paved the way And so for people who had been at the institution for a period of time prior to me, when I started this job, they're like, oh, you took over for Mary Finland. They're like, I didn't take over for Mary. Um, That's quite the legacy to fill. Um, And so people at that point in time weren't accustomed to having a Mary Finland, so to speak, for the rest of the teams, but they could relate to. And there are faculty that knew Mary Finland who are still on campus. And so it was easier to start to describe to them what it was the expectations were around my role, thanks to what Mary, Mary Fenland did for men's basketball. And of course, again, so important to that team that obviously always were good in the classroom as well as good on the court. Absolutely. Um, moving on with that, I was actually looking around and doing some research, but I think I shocked you by the research I had done for this interview <laughs> today. But I saw a, a little infographic, I believe, from the, uh, the D.C. Uh, sports Athletic Association, the high school sports, where they had an infographic of you and the famous Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote of women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. Why does that strike a chord for you? Women are half the population. Women should be at 50% at the table every time. And so understanding, I grew up with Title IX. I did not see the full benefits of Title IX from an athletic standpoint. That wasn't why I stopped but they shouldn't be the exception. You look, we've been doing some reflection in the athletic department from a diversity standpoint since last summer. Um, We have very few sports that are women's sports coached by women. And so there are no sports that are men's sports coached by women. When our building was finished, uh, I said to our athletic director, I said, uh, it's nice that you have two locker rooms for staff with men, with women's basketball, shouldn't you have two locker rooms for men's basketball? And he's like, oh, good point. And so there are women coaching at the elite levels on the men's side. Um, I'm forward thinking and thinking women are gonna be everywhere. And so at some point in time, I hope that's a problem that men's basketball has. Jelly, do you feel extra pressure being a female decision maker? 
Occasionally, if I'm one of the few women in the room, um, I'm not a wallflower. And so I do speak my mind, especially if it's going to impact our student athletes. And so um, I don't necessarily ask all the questions I, I publicly, I'll ask them quietly, but there are fewer women. I'm often one of the few women, if not the only women with senior leadership. And so it's, yeah, it is, it is on my mind. I am reminded periodically that I am a woman. Shelly, it was actually when I talked to Sharon Bramell, the senior athletic administrator for women earlier on an earlier edition of the podcast. And she kind of was straight out about it. She said, look, you know, to get diversity, you have to hire, you know, people of color, women. Is that a aspect that you try to take to say, look, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to find really good ones, but I'm going to go find diversity and make sure I'm hiring these people. It is a consideration. Every time I hire uh, for my grad assistants, I try to hire a diverse pool of candidates. Now, I have done that un unconsciously, but then I walk it back to go back and look and see, see who it is who I've chosen. Um, and so at some level, I have done it already, um, but I think a conscious effort to make sure, it's a gut check, am I doing this? Because if I don't, other people won't either. And so I've got to have that balance. And I think my team is better as a result of it different voices in the room. Now, speaking of different voices, this is one thing I wanted to ask you. Dealing with male and female athletes and students, are there differences in approach? Absolutely, they're different creatures. Um, there's a sociology of teams within teams as well. Um, generally speaking, the women have the anticipatory meltdowns and show up in my office weeks before the exam in tears that they're failing the class, even though we have no evidence to suggest that that's in <laughs> fact the case. The men are much more likely to say, I got it, I'm a clutch performer, even though there's no evidence to suggest that they're gonna pass their class. <laughs> and so, yes, I would say most of my clientele, um, especially after freshman year, is, is more male-oriented than female-oriented. Um, and that's, that's a maturity. Uh, this is frontal lobe development. Uh, the car companies understand that until you hit 25, your decision-making capacity isn't as good as it will be which is why young men pay more for their car insurance until they're 25 or married or both. <laughs> Shelly, uh, one of the big academic scandals we see, not at Georgetown, but other places, is the fact of you get folks who are supposed to be tutoring, doing work for athletes. Is there a way of, or kind of at the starting point, trying to do things to nip something like that in the bud before it would ever come up. And if there are even entrees toward that from one side, kind of making people know to be strong to say, no, this is how we do things around here. We've been really fortunate. And um, this is something the senior administration would talk about on a regular basis. We're really fortunate because of the kinds of students. We only hire peer tutors. We don't hire any tutors from outside, outside Georgetown. Some are undergrad, some are grad students. Um, we do a really good job of weeding people out through the interview process, but some of it has to do with the type of student that's coming to Georgetown already. So some of that is handled. Now, um, I also think we do a good job of training our students. Um, we talk about the role of extra benefits and NCAA regulations, but at the end of the day, Georgetown has an honor code. And part of that honor code is doing your own work. And so I think it's a multi-layered approach. It's the students that we're already getting, it's the students that we're interviewing, and then there's the training that we do. And then there's the supervision of the, of the tutors as well. And so making sure that the students are doing their part, showing up to tutoring. Tutors don't have pixie dust. They can't make a bad exam grade go away. But if you show up prepared for tutoring, then you don't ever get into a situation where the tutor is doing too much work for you. Um, and we've explained to our tutors what the expect expectations are around, around those tutoring sessions. And so I think we've done a good job of communicating, but it's also who the students are that are attending Georgetown. Shelly, we'll wrap up on this one. Um, obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it has changed everything for everybody. Coaches telling me that, you know, basically they have their two hours on the field and everything else is done via Zoom. You've got administrators saying they're doing different things. Um, when you've been hearing from student athletes, how is everyone adjusting to this time? And have there been some adjustments that you and your staff have had to make personally? Yeah, so the biggest difference has been that everything is done virtually. Um, the funny thing about it for me is that I have almost no missed appointments. Normally I have one a day and one of the coaches said, yeah, that's right. They're a captive audience. And I'm like, thanks coach. Um, <laughs> they're desperate for contact. 
And so I have very few missed appointments these days. That's the single biggest difference. Um, my schedules is busy. I'm seeing more students for check-in meetings than I normally would because they want the contact. And they don't get that. They don't get the casual contact in the hallway or on the field. Um, and they're either stuck at home or they're stuck in their dorm on campus. And so um, fewer missed appointments, which has been really nice. Um, and that's the part I miss about being on campus as well as seeing the students. Well, an unattended positive in that way, but again, doing some great work. Dr. Shelley Abel, Associate Director, Student Athlete Services at Georgetown. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC. Jeremy, thank you. You have a great afternoon. It was a pleasure being with you. You as well. We'll have more after this. MetStar Health is the official medical team of the Washington Capitals Wizards 2019 World Champion Mystics and your Georgetown Hoyas. But you don't have to be an elite athlete to get the same level of care. MetStar Orthopedic Institute offers orthopedic surgeons who provide the innovative solutions for your entire spectrum of orthopedic care. With locations throughout D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, we welcome second opinions. Visit MetStarOrthopedicInstitute.org. Georgetown fans, this basketball season, remember to keep it interessante, just like Dos Equis, the taste that first brought baskets and balls together on the hilltop. It's the beer that pairs perfectly with Georgetown Blue and Gray, and the only beer that's brewed to the Georgetown fight song. So grab Dos Equis for tip-off and keep it interessante. Hoya Saxa. Enjoy Dos Equis responsibly, imported by Cervezas Mexicanas, White Plains, New York. Copyright 2019, Dos Equis Beer Brands. The Hoya Insider is available on a variety of podcast platforms, including SoundCloud and iTunes. Check out at Georgetown Hoyas on Twitter and Instagram for details on new episodes. For our guests, Hoya basketball legend Sugar Rogers and Associate Director Student Athlete Services, Dr. Shelley Habel, as well as our producer, Joel Russ, and our executive producer, Barbara Barnes, I'm Jeremy Hubert saying so long. This has been the Hoya Insider Podcast presented by PNC.